Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Devon Dragon Radio. I'm your host, Emma Ruschak. I'm here with my special guest, Dr. Alan Watzer. Welcome. Nice to meet you. Now, you're into psychology for chronic pain mostly, but what led you into the field to begin with? It's a long story. Uh, I was originally a trial attorney for many years and then decided to become a clinical psychologist. And that takes us to early 80s to late 80s, getting into graduate school and changing professions. That is a quite a flat flip going from being a lawyer to going into a completely different field. Different, but not as different as you might think. Uh, I like to think of it as lawyers have all the answers and psychologists have all the questions. Okay. And I'm more interested in the question than the answer. Ah, well, so you got the questions for all the chronic pain that you deal with. Yeah, let me give you a brief history of how I got involved in chronic pain, which mm-hmm. I've been doing for the last 20 years. Please. Uh, it started, actually, what leads to this is that when I was doing my internship as a psychologist, I worked in a state mental hospital in New York. Bronx Psychiatric Center, and started there as an intern and then stayed on for almost 10 years. So that got me involved working with people who are chronically mentally ill Mm -hmm. and institutionalized. And what that did for me was to start looking at people, not in terms of the disease, but to look at the total person Mm -hmm. and to treat the life of the person. Because chronic pain, chronic uh, people, chronic psychotic people, their lives have been trashed. So I learned quite a bit about rehabilitation and recovery and a lot of different interdisciplinary approaches to help restore functioning, restore as much of that life as possible. And so that was very profound for me as an experience. Uh, And then I came out to Seattle from New York in the late 90s, continuing that work in the community mental health center, but eventually, for a lot of reasons, moving on and started working in chronic pain almost by accident. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. I took a job working at a chronic pain management program, Mm -hmm. saw the model they were using to treat patients and realized that it was sort of illness focused, injury focused as it had been in the hospital and really started looking at this holistically and existentially. And that led to an understanding that people with chronic physical pain are not just being affected physically. It affects every aspect of their life potentially 
it creates collateral damages. And if you know the current medical model, that's mostly focused on the physical injury, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But they're not looking at how the person may have been damaged physically, sleep disruption, loss of physical conditioning, loss of a sense of identity, loss of self-esteem, damaged relationships, loss of the ability to work. You start looking at this, there can be up to 200 collateral damages in a typical chronic pain patient, and none of those are being treated. Exactly. And yet all of them can contribute to how much pain you have and how quickly you recover. So that over the last 20 years evolved into first understanding what's really going on uh, and then going, what do you do with that? Which is why if you look at the title of my recent book, you'll see Unraveling the Mystery is like, what's going on here? And then developing mastery is how do you get on top of that? How do you keep in control of your life despite the impacts? That is a perfect thing because I can tell you back in the 2011, I had two strokes and brain surgery. I was being treated for the symptoms and I wasn't being treated for the mental part. So you go through the sense of loss, you go from being a healthy, quote unquote, 28 year old to not being able to get dressed by yourself, not being able to work, not being able to take your care of your child, then your relationship suffers, your sleep suffers. There's so much going on and all you do is get depressed. Well, what do you do? Here's a pill for pain and here's a pill for the depression, but it's not treating anything. So uh, I've seen over 2000 patients. So the good news is that I was able to learn a lot about what's going on. Uh, I followed the approach I took in the hospital, like what, what's happening to this person's life? Who is this person, right? Everybody's unique. Mm -hmm. uh, there's pre-existing everything before this happens. So uh, I focused on understanding the person, how they're being affected, and then going, what, what do you do with that? So if you look at the book, the book will always present a solution, a problem and a solution. But what's really important about this is that led to the development of an approach that's unique and beyond any of my training or graduate school. And that was realizing that human beings, and I'm sure you know this, we're designed to survive. Evolution has created a creature that is geared towards adapting and surviving, right? Mm -hmm. We know this, right? And yet we seem to think when we're facing challenges, we're not prepared. We don't have the equipment to deal with it, and yet we do. And that equipment is what has become concretized in what's called the existential immune system. Turns out you don't just have the physical immune system, you have an emotional, psychological, and existential system with specific tools. Now, once you know that, it's the reason why we see people overcome impossible. And you may be a good example of that yourself. People like Stephen Hawking, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you go like, how do they do that? How come some people do that and other people are completely done in by it? It all depends on how much you can connect with your own innate potential as a human being, that evolutionary equipment. So that evolved into a very specific tool-based approach, which I would describe as cognitive existential because it's both cognitive, but it's also based on a much deeper understanding. Right. You have to go, there's so many different layers to this onion that we're peeling back. Uh, it's not something that a lot of people go into because they don't understand it. That's you right. can't, you have to be able to be in tune to yourself 
what is your truth that you know for yourself? Get rid of everything that people are telling you. Stop listening to it and just go, okay, what can I actually do? How, what can I do to help myself? You have to look at yourself first, or you have a doctor that might understand this and help you get to understanding yourself. If you can tap into your mind, your body, and heal yourself from within, you can actually go further. Like what does Stephen Hawkins do after everything? What has some of these other people who have survived major things that go back and win Olympics? I think if I could meet those people and talk to them, I find that they grew up experiencing unconditional love. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a centerpiece for all my patients. And I see a really diverse cross-section of people from day-to-day -day people to movers and shakers. But with chronic pain, it's kind of like COVID. It's so impactful that if they don't truly love themselves, it's going to hit the surface. And then it's harder to tap into the potential. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the work is based on dispelling an illusion that self-worth is not based on who you are. It's based on what you are. You understand that self-worth is based on you have infinite potential as a human being. Who you are, if you don't like it, you can change it. But to attach your value to that and then have chronic pain interrupt the value, make it hard for you to be a person you want to be, do what you want to do, you probably know from your own experience, that is a dead end. It is. Right. But if you go, I've got potential, right? I've got this innate potential. If I know how to use that, if I can channel that, then I can find my way through to this. And that the key to that is discovering people's uh, inspiration, what really matters, kind of who they are. That sometimes is the hardest thing to get through to people. What actually makes you go? What's your inspiration? What's your outlook on life? What is the why that you're here? What do you think of yourself? I tell those to some, so many people, quit listening to the outside world. You have to find the why within yourself to move forward. And then you can overcome anything. Yeah, absolutely true. But here's an interesting concept, all right? Part of the toolkit that I mentioned, mm -hmm. all human experience eventually is translated into thoughts and feelings. And then those determine action, right? right. So kind of bottom line, thoughts and feelings. So the focus in this approach is on, okay, what's going on with thinking and what's going on with your emotions. So that led to some really interesting discoveries. Uh, you may know this, most people don't. Human emotions actually have a functional purpose. They're not just an experience. They're actually part of your toolkit. And with chronic pain patients, they have so much more anxiety and anger. At some point I go like, is that just suffering? Is that just kind of part of the problem? Has it no useful purpose? Well, it turns out it does. It turns out anxiety and anger are the most important human emotions and your most important tool in recovery, but only if you know how to use them. You will never experience those emotions unless your needs are being threatened. You think about that. If you've ever felt anxious or angry, there's going to be needs being threatened. It's part of an alarm system, right? Mm -hmm. And an action system. So here's where it's really interesting, right? You know how people go, I don't know who I am. Yeah, I don't mean to sound facetious about this, but you are what you need. 
So if you use the techniques to explore behind the scenes, go like what, what needs are being threatened, right? Because you're feeling anxious and angry. You'll discover what matters to you. You discover what matters to you. You will discover what your purpose is and what your inspiration is. So on the surface, this technique looks pretty cognitive and sort of straightforward, but it gets in as deep as psychoanalysis would. That you have a lot of research here that needs to be brought into a lot more people, <laughs> a lot more doctors. I'll put it to you this way. Uh, I, in the state of Washington, I work with the best people in the state and, and they support the work. You know, they've endorsed the book, but years ago I said, so you send me a lot of patients, you really value this approach. You know that nobody else and nobody else does this. This is a unique approach in this state. I said, why don't you modify your practice? There's things that you need to make part of your intake packet. My intake packet is 65 pages long, right? That's exciting. Right, it's daunting. I'm looking to assess these collateral damages, right? The answer to the question was stunning. They said, we don't do that, you're the specialist. So we'll, we'll send the patient to you. Okay. okay, so we need more specialists trained by you in, in the United States. <laughs> you know, uh, Melissa, it's, it's really problematic. For example, mm -hmm. sleep disruption, which is typical, can make your pain 50% more. But when they have you do that pain rating, the zero to 10, mm -hmm. they don't say, well, if you've got sleep disruption, it might be higher than I would expect it to be. Mm -hmm. They don't incorporate that information. They'll make use of it for me. They'll read my reports, but they don't communicate that. They don't relate to it at that level. There's two chapters in the book about all the things that go wrong in treatment and what to do about it to make sure you don't have that happen. And don't get me wrong. I love the providers I work with but they're working in a model that is archaic. Oh, the entire healthcare system that we have here in the United States is archaic. It's here's a pill, call me in the morning. Well, we have to get rid of that thinking, that mindset, that model, and go to what is the actual problem. We have the science now that we can go behind the, why do you need this pill? Or what can I give you or tell you or send you to, so you don't need the pill. Yeah, yeah. So it's, and, and they are also enriched in their efforts. Once I've gotten involved, then we work together. Mm -hmm. uh, as you probably know, you probably asked yourself the question, who's the quarterback in my treatment? Who's, who's running the show? Who's keeping it all together? Maybe you had a good experience. I don't know, but most people go like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't really know who's in charge. I don't know if they're talking to each other. Uh, I talk to everyone. So if there's any hub of the wheel, any center to the treatment, I'm the person that's checking in with all the providers. I'm often spending the first part of the work on helping to clarify structurally what's going on. And here's why treatment works or doesn't. And overcoming the thing that's common to most of my patients, safety. You have physical problems, you have symptoms you don't completely understand. How are you going to feel safe to do anything or to push it? Everybody's worried about re-injury. They're worried about worse. So a lot of this work is managing it and helping a person become empowered and getting on top of it, being in control of it. You know, you may have experienced this typical problem is, do I, does anybody else really understand what you're going through? When you were going through what you went through, who got it? Who got how right. you were being affected? Yeah, no one understood. I actually ended up firing everyone that was being treated by. I fired my psycho, my 
mental health people. I fired my epilepsy doctor. I fired my PT doctors. No one understood. Everyone said, here's a pill. I actually only treated myself by going through YouTube and Google of how to relearn how to do everything. And I just skipped over the mental health until later and found a mindset coach to help me build the mental health up. Yeah, uh, there's a lot more that people can do than they know. Uh, the mental health part of it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, doctors are focused on how anxious or depressed a person is, mm -hmm. but so this, these are just ideas, right? They're, they're in the book, they're anecdotal, right? Doing my dissertation kind of cured me of wanting to do any formal research. So uh, let other people test what I have in the book. But I do know from working with this many patients is validity just based on observation. So <clears throat> people typically get depressed when they have chronic pain or chronic medical problems, right? Not unusual. Right. What most people don't know is what depression really is. Now, I ask these questions like they're trick questions, but yeah, there's a biological substrate to it. But that would be the equivalent of saying that when you have a headache, you have an aspirin deficiency. Right. You know, chicken and the egg, right? With neuroplasticity, what came first? Uh, you can say that it has to do with all the symptoms, mm -hmm. but what depression actually is, along with every other mental health diagnosis, is a coping mechanism. Now, for a lot of people, that's a shocking concept. Really, depression's miserable. It has all these terrible symptoms. How could that help you to cope? Well, I don't know if you've ever been there, but if you get really depressed, you stop caring, you shut down emotionally. Mm -hmm. Why would you want to do that? Because it keeps you in bed and you don't want to do anything. You don't have to move. You don't want to see people. Well, but, that's all true, but it's the yeah. not feeling that yeah. people are aiming towards, right? But what are you trying to not feel? If what I said about anxiety and anger is true, when you have a chronic medical problem, You've got a lot more of that going on. And if you don't know how to use it, it's overwhelming, so you throw the switch. The problem is now you've trapped yourself. You have just separated yourself from the two tools that evolution provided you to save you, which is why people who are depressed often say they feel helpless. So depression for me is a coping mechanism that's way too expensive. It's like medication with too many side effects. Mm -hmm. People begin to grab their hands on that one they begin to address how to properly use anxiety and anger, it changes everything. And I'm not saying that anybody would be happy with chronic conditions, but being depressed, as you know, mm -hmm. is disabling all by itself. So is anxiety. Yeah, especially if you think anxiety is, is an aberration. Anxiety is natural. Mm -hmm. As natural as breathing, and so is anger. They're just tools. And if you don't know how to use them, they will abuse you. Right, so yelling, screaming, and hitting is not anger. That is mismanagement. Panic attacks is mismanagement, mm -hmm. not the emotion. The emotion are just forms of energy, just like key energy is in the martial arts. If you don't learn how to channel it properly, then what? Exactly. I'm one of those people that I leave my house, I'm anxious, I'm nervous, and once I'm going to where I'm at, now I'm good. Now I'm, I'm calm and I'm gonna relax. And it's just getting me from my front, my room to my front door to my car. Once I'm in my car, I'm good now. <laughs> sure. But if you ask yourself when you were feeling anxious, mm -hmm. what need is being threatened? On the way out the door, what need is threatened? Yeah, 
I haven't figured that need out yet. Well, is there anything about leaving and going out that feels unsafe? No. Anything it, about driving that feels unsafe? I love driving. I love being on trips. It's just leaving the house. And I, I haven't got to what, why that's fearful yet. Interesting. I've, I've been looking, working on it for a couple of years and I'm, I'm getting there. I mean, I'm wonderful when I'm out. It's just, I haven't figured out the why yet. Well, without getting too personal. So did this happen after your med medical problem? Mm -hmm. And how long were you kind of housebound? Uh, almost two years. Okay. When you were housebound, did you feel safer? No. You felt safer being out? When I was out, I was in the hospital for two years. Now I'm, yeah. So I was safer at the hospital than I was at the home. Do you have any concerns when you go out that you might have some problem physically? Now, no, that it, but years ago, yes. Okay. Could be a traumatic reaction. It could be. Just an association you have with something that used to be a problem that isn't anymore. Could be. I, like I said, it's something that I'm working to get over. It's growing, but at the same time, I acknowledge that it's still there. You know, one of the things I always think about what do things mean to people? Mm -hmm. You know, you can tell me you lost your job. That's information, but I don't know what that means mm -hmm. because it could mean something totally different to you than to me. Right. Right. You had a significant medical problem. And then the question is, what's, what's the resonance from that? You know, you know this especially if it, you have it happen at an early age. I broke my neck when I was 12 and a half. It nearly wrecked my entire life because of the way I dealt with it when I was a kid. I eventually worked my way through it. So that, that ripple effect, mm -hmm. I suspect that maybe this is not about what's happening now, but it's sort of an association with when you used to feel less safe being out. Probably. And I'm still, it's something that we have to work through and figure out what the trigger is. And then use, I use an anxiety for double packing and it, it's, you know, double check, double check. I have everything I need or over what I need. Now I'm good because I have everything I need with me and I know I have everything. Yeah. Well, mystery yet to be explored. Yes, it is. Yeah. It's one of those, it will probably be a mystery six years from now, but at the same time, I can always revisit what's going on. Right. Yeah, it's been my experience that people don't necessarily know that some of their anxiety may be coming from the past or even the future. Mm -hmm. uh, it isn't always what's obvious. So it's probably somewhere in that zone. Yeah, somewhere. I, I just bring it up because we are on the topic of anxiety and I do interject some of my personal experience into the conversations. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. So, but where can we find your book or find you so we can send you clients? Okay, well, frankly, I'm much more interested right now in doing exactly what you mentioned earlier in, in the conversation. I wrote the books of people that I don't see could become mm -hmm. more aware of this. Uh, we put together classes that will be launched in about a month. This approach is very powerful. It's impactful. I've seen it work across people, but unless you see me as a patient, you don't know anything about it. And a lot of it is something that you can learn. You don't necessarily have to be in counseling with me. 
So uh, what I'm more interested in is sort of the exposure to this approach and hopefully people will look at it and go, yeah. For example, if you handed this book to the people who did not understand, they would understand. Okay, that makes sort of, sense. You know what I'm saying? You go like, read the book and then come back to me and tell me you don't understand what's going on with me because it's experiential. You have to bring a person within your experience, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you can access the book through the website, which is under newoptionsinc.com. Okay. And that'll give you a direct link up with Amazon where the book is published. Uh, it'll also let you know about when classes are going to be coming forward. So my main mission right now is to, to get the word out and make sure people know there is a, an approach here that is not typical, that can be highly impactful. And more importantly, to see what, what people like Hawking and other people have done. We're inspired by this, right? We see people overcome stuff. We go like, wow, it's possible, right? Mm -hmm. I've been a martial artist for over 50 years. And one of the things I love about it is martial arts says, you don't know your limits. Right? Exactly. I, I love when I was in martial arts as a child and teen, that was one thing that I picked up was you don't know your limits. You can do anything as long as you put your mind to it. What kind of martial arts did you study? Uh, karate and judo. Nice. I started in judo and then karate, so similar. I started with judo and then went to karate with my grandfather as well. You'll, you'll laugh when I tell you this. So I broke my neck at 12 and a half, right? Mm -hmm. Did that on a diving board, came down on the board. So it was serious, right? They bring me to the hospital. The doctor comes in and says, if you don't die and you're not paralyzed, you will be crippled for the rest of your life. Just imagine hearing that at 12 and a half, right? Mm -hmm. So I walked around for the rest of junior high and high school thinking I was fragile. I didn't do anything. I stopped sports. I stopped taking risk, right? By the time I got to college, I go, you know what? If, if that's the way it's going to be, then I might as well find out, right? right? So this is where the connection is. What did I do? I signed up for judo and trampoline. And I still remember the first time I, and you'll know this because you've done it, I got slammed to the ground like you're doing judo a lot. Yes. And I was going, that's either going to make me a cripple or worse for the rest of my life or something else. Mm -hmm. Well, that was the beginning of a 50 year practice with martial arts. My neck is fine. My <laughs> neck was never a problem, but if I believed what I was told, mm -hmm. if I left it untested, and it's not to say the doctors were wrong, but when doctors tell you with certainty, this is what's going to happen. I go like, why are you saying it's certain? Exactly. When I was 28 with the strokes and the brain surgery, I couldn't move at all from the right side of my body. I was pretty much paralyzed. The doctor said, you will never walk again. You will never speak English normal again. This wow. is the best you're going to get. I don't believe that. What did you tap into to help yourself through that? I have a 20 or I had my daughter is now 19, but she was eight years old at the time. She's autistic and she's used to mommy being in the school. She's used to mommy reading. She's used to mommy helping her with everything. She's not okay seeing me need help. So I have to get better to help my daughter. Found your inspiration. Mm -hmm. Everything wow. I did from that moment was for her. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful that you found a way to that. And that's what I've learned working with people that even, because often I'll look at the, initial evaluation of like what do i think i can do to help this person there's so many things going on 
most of my patients have multiple problems, right? But it's exactly what you're talking about. Where you find that center where a person's power is, and then you find a way to help them utilize that and channel it like yourself, like me. Mm -hmm. Look what's possible that we were told couldn't be. I mean, if you would have heard me talk in 2011, I have what they call foreign accent syndrome. I'm sure you've actually heard about it. There's not very many cases, cases of it, but I was speaking Romanian. No one knows Romanian in my family, so I don't know where this came from, but that's why the doctor said you would never speak English again. I had my psychologist tell me I had just came over to the US from Romania and I had to bring my birth certificate in and show her, no, I was born here. I have no lineage to that country. That's, I've heard of that, but that's you're the first person I've known who's had that experience. How long did that last? Uh, till my third stroke in 2013. Wow. And then I started speaking English again. <laughs> so you're definitely, definitely a shining example of the kind of thing that I address with people. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah. everything's related, but at the same time, you can overcome anything. If I can overcome that, overcoming anything else, you just have to find your passion, to find your strength, find your why. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we both agree about pretty much everything. Just coming from it from two different angles. Yeah, my concern with pain management is the typical approach with psychologists is much more superficial. Mm -hmm. It's really not holistic. It's not existential. It doesn't get down to people. Humans make meaning of their experience, and it's the meaning you attribute where the real action is. So I'm always talking to people about, okay, so that happened. What does that really mean to you, right? You know, when I had my accident, it destroyed my confidence. Before that, I was completely fearless. But I blamed myself for doing something stupid and almost killing myself. And so it took me years to overcome that. Exactly. So, but no doctor ever asked me, how do you feel about yourself because you got hurt? Nobody ever asked me that question. No, no, no one's ever asked me that question, ever. So there's things that we have to change within the healthcare system. And I'm sure your book is one step toward that. Hopefully, yeah. Fingers crossed. But it was so good having you on the show today. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity. And for our viewers and our listeners, happy healing.